When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And in this episode, well, how do I describe it? We've all been intrigued by our family histories and sometimes we'll beam with pride when we find out what our ancestors were able to achieve. This is certainly the case in this episode. We have Rebecca Donner, who has just written a fascinating new book about her great-great-aunt, Mildred Harnock. This book is flying off the shelves at the moment, has received rave reviews in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and I'm pretty sure this is going to be a future bestseller. And it's understandable why. Rebecca's great-great-aunt was born and raised in the United States. She enrolled in a PhD program in Berlin at the age of 26. But as she witnessed the meteoric rise of the Nazi party, from as early as 1932, she began to hold secret meetings in her apartment with a small band of political activists. By 1940, that small band had grown into the largest underground resistance movement in Berlin. Now, Rebecca found all this out as she was researching her family history. She turned into a kind of historical detective. And what she found out about her heroic relative was that she was actually the only American who had a leadership role in the German resistance. She helped Jews escape. She plotted acts of sabotage. And she wrote leaflets denouncing Hitler's regime. Her fate... Well, I'll let Rebecca explain that one for you. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks so much for coming on the Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. No, not a problem at all. Where are you in the world? I am in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, New York. How's your summer going? It's going very well. I'm very pleased with the launch of the book. And I'm, after many, many years of being sequestered in my office, it's just a joy to bring it out in the world and talk to people like you about it. Yes. How long have you been working on this project for? Well, there are many ways I could answer that question. It's been gestating in me since I was about nine years old, (laughs) (laughs) which was quite a while ago. Uh, But I began thinking about writing it in earnest after my second book was published. And then I visited the Gedenkstätte Deutsche Widerstand at the German Resistance Memorial Center, thinking that there would be maybe a plaque about her and some documents. I knew my grandmother had given documents and photographs and letters to the center, and she had since passed away. So I went 
really just to investigate what they had. And I took the elevator up to the second floor and the elevator doors opened. And there was this enormous portrait of Mildred Harnock, of my great, great aunt. And I was not expecting this. I hadn't even known that there was an exhibition and I just happened upon it. And I realized right then that I really needed to write this book. And the size of the picture of the portrait of her matched my ambitions. I envisioned a very big book. I think that at that point, though, I thought maybe I should have one more book under my belt because I was aware of the magnitude of this project. And so I began researching it. I met with the director. I started going over documents. But I began working on a novel at that point and thought, I'll write this after the novel. And then in 2016, I began in earnest. And that was in the lead up to the presidential election. I thought, this is the time for me to write this book. I'm going to put the novel aside. I felt a tremendous urgency to tell this story now. So that's a very long-winded way of saying it's been a number of years. But really, since 2016 is when I basically dropped everything and devoted myself pretty much full-time to this book. Oh, wow. I love that idea of you clearing the desk and getting down to writing this straight away because you felt it was important for the time in which we live. And it's an amazing story. So many of us love to delve into our family histories in the hope of finding some tales of bravery or triumph or fame. I mean, I was excited when I found out my great uncle once played for Liverpool. But with you, this is incredible. Can you tell us a little bit about your great, great aunt Mildred Harnock? Tell us who she was, what she did, and a little bit about her personality. Mildred Harnock, my great, great aunt, was an American graduate student from Wisconsin who became a leader of one of the largest underground resistance groups in Germany during Hitler's regime. Well, let's just stop you there one second, Rebecca, because that is one hell of a sentence. So she is an American citizen who ends up becoming one of the leaders of the greatest resistance groups in Germany during the Second World War. That's correct. But actually, the resistance group, uh, she began holding meetings as early as 1932. And so over the course of the decade, this group then merged with at least three other underground resistance groups. Tatkreis, Rittmeisterkreis, and Gegnerkreis. And then in 1940, this network had formed a chain at that point. And that's at the point when they intersected with a Soviet espionage network and subsequently became known as the Rote Kapelle, or the Red Orchestra. But it's important to note that, again, this group had been around since actually before Hitler was chancellor. Essentially, she was in Berlin, she was studying for her PhD, and she noted with alarm the meteoric rise in Hitler's popularity and in the Nazi party's popularity. And so this is what prompted her to begin to think about ways of resisting. Did she have joint German-American nationality? Did her American passport protect her a little in the early days? Well, I believe it certainly... Who's to say? I mean, eventually she was brought to a guillotine and decapitated, so it didn't help her there. But uh, in the early days of the regime, she took advantage of her American passport. She benefited from it in the sense that she could travel to other countries more easily than other people in her group. And she certainly did. And she met with other people in the resistance in other countries, in England, in France, and in Switzerland, for example. Oh, wow. So... 
her passport almost allowed her to become such an important interlocutor that that would have allowed her also to become an important leader as well, especially as the Nazi regime grew in power. As Hitler's power did grow, how did her role grow in the resistance? Her primary role initially was as a recruiter. She recruited primarily working class Germans who were her students. She lectured about American literature at the University of Berlin in 1931 and 1932. And this was her first pool of potential recruits. And then she was actually fired from the University of Berlin. It appears it was because of her political views and how candid she was about them. And then she got a job at an adult night school nicknamed The Bag. And primarily the students who attended that school were working class Germans, unemployed Germans who had not gotten a degree. And so this was the first school of its kind in Germany to target Germans who had fallen through the cracks and to try to give them a leg up and to give them an education that was typically reserved for those in the upper classes. These were some of her most loyal recruits were at this school and some of the most effective people in the group were her recruits from the bag. Hitler became chancellor in January 1933 and one of her letters to her mother that she sent back to uh, Wisconsin the day before, January 29th, she says, with great enthusiasm, I'm a free woman. I can do what I want. I have the career that I want. I'm studying for a PhD. Life is good. And the next day, Hitler became chancellor. And that's when she stepped up her acts of resistance. And so in 1935, she took on another role, which was she started leading the meetings. Prior to that, she wasn't leading them. I think part of that is that her German wasn't very good. There is a common misconception that is perpetuated by some lazy research and articles here that have appeared here in the U.S. that she was either German-American, that somehow she had Germans in her family, and that because she grew up in Milwaukee, and which has a lot of Germans in it, that she spoke German fluently as a young girl, which is hogwash. She began to learn German when she moved to Germany. And she moved to Germany, I should back up for a second, in 1929 and met her German husband there. Rather, she joined him there. They met at the University of Wisconsin in Madison when she was just a graduate student, as was he. He was a German exchange student. Fast forwarding to 1935, Arvid Harnock, her husband, got a position at the Ministry of Economics. And his objective was to undermine the Nazi regime from within to obtain access to top secret documents that then he could give to Hitler's enemies. And at that point, Mildred began running the meetings. And and we know this because of primary source documents I discovered in a German archive, an interrogation that was conducted with one of the members who actually was taken prisoner and was in the Soviet Union. A lot of facts about the group surfaced in this interrogation. One of them was that Mildred was leading these meetings in 1935. And so it is commonly assumed that Arvid was the one who led the meetings and did all the recruiting. In books, these students of Mildred's uh, who she had recruited are transformed into Arvid's recruits. You often hear them referred to as Arvid's contacts, Arvid's recruits. And they weren't, they were Mildred's. In 1935, she stepped up her efforts to meet with people in the resistance beyond Germany's borders. 
And this is when her passport became useful. In 35, and particularly starting in 1937, she started doing this. She got a job with a publisher as a scout, a literary scout, which was a kind of a cover, which also enabled her to travel to other countries and escape Gestapo suspicion. And then in 1939, once Germany invaded Poland, that's when Mildred began to actively engage in espionage for the United States. And then beginning in 1940, she also passed information to the Soviet Union. Was she officially linked as someone supplying espionage to the United States? Was she recruited up as a spy? Or was this something that was an added role as part of the resistance? It was not an official role at all. This resistance group was a scrappy resistance group. They were trying to do whatever they could to undermine Hitler's regime. And she also never saw herself as a spy. She never would have referred to herself as a spy. Arvid was the same way. He was extremely resistant when he was formally recruited as a spy for the Soviet Union. He was exceedingly reluctant and didn't want to receive money and didn't want a control officer. But regarding Mildred, again, because she was American, she had an advantage in Berlin as somebody who was well-connected to the expat community. In 1939, she became the president of the American Women's Club. She had been lecturing there and had been a devoted member of the club for years during the 1930s, but then she took a leadership role in 1939. She also was friends with people at the U.S. Embassy in Berlin, in particular Martha Dodd, who was the daughter of the ambassador there for a time. And she attended all of the embassy functions and rubbed shoulders with diplomats. And actually, in an NKVD file that that surfaced in the early 1990s, which there was a brief moment when some of these files were brought to light and historians were allowed to look at them. And then they, again, went back under lock and key. But there is an NKVD file that refers to Mildred as somebody who is exceedingly well-connected in the American community and looks like a loyal Nazi and acts the part of a loyal Nazi. And by this point, she was leading a double life. And so the NKVD was this particular person who was recommending her as somebody they could recruit as a spy. Little did this person know that she already was at this point engaged in espionage for the Soviet Union, just not in an official capacity. There's some indications that the man who was Arvid's control officer also interacted with her, but the evidence is scant, so we can't really say conclusively. I hesitate to say that she worked in any official capacity in the way that he did. Was she able to bat away the advances of the German spy networks to recruit her, or did she take on a sort of double agent role? <laughs> I think some of this is, we must speculate, because she did not write this information down in her letters. She burned her journal, and she was quite secretive by necessity. And again, a lot of the correspondence, um, the memos that passed between this group and Moscow Center have not surfaced. Many of them have, but there's still much that we don't know. I would say that in terms of her espionage for the United States, she saw herself as occupying a unique role, somebody who had access to diplomats and families of diplomats. And in particular, there was one, a man named Donald Heath, and he was at the U.S. Embassy. His official capacity was as first secretary um, he was put there by Henry Morgenthau, Secretary of Treasury, 
to gather information about the Ministry of Economics in particular, which is again where Arvid Harnock worked. And Morgenthau put him there because he was exceedingly frustrated by the poor quality of intelligence that the United States was receiving. It must be remembered that at this point, he was put there in 1937, the United States had no centralized intelligence agency of any sort. And they wouldn't for many years. And so the information that was gathered was a very clumsy and disorganized endeavor. Uh, You had the FBI collecting information within the United States. You had the U.S. Navy. And then really it was left to diplomats at embassies to put their ears to the ground, to go to embassy parties, to gather gossip, really, and to type up digests of newspaper articles. And this is what passed for intelligence at that time. So Morgenthau placed Donald Heath at the U.S. Embassy in Berlin to improve the quality of intelligence. And Arvid Harnock was one of his key sources. Mildred was the go-between. Mildred became friends with the Heaths, and in particular with the wife of Donald Heath, Louise Heath, who went to the American Women's Club frequently and watched Mildred's lectures and They became friends, and then they realized they could be useful to one another. And so once the war began, the Heaths had a big dilemma, whether they should send their 11-year-old son to a boarding school in Switzerland, back to the United States. And this was something that all the other sons and daughters of diplomats were, they were being sent off away from Germany. And they decided to keep him in Germany. And they decided to use their son, their 11-year-old son, Don Heath Jr., to help resistance, and in particular, Mildred Harnock. So this little boy, Don Heath, would show up at Mildred's apartment twice a week between 1939 and 1941, ostensibly for tutoring sessions in English and American literature. And while these tutoring sessions did take place, um, I have reading lists that she gave him and homework assignments these are all in my family archives, they also provided the opportunity for her to slip notes into his knapsack at the end of the sessions, and then she could communicate with the Heaths. Many times these notes were basically locations and times when they could meet outside of Berlin, away from Gestapo surveillance, hopefully, and when they could basically pass information verbally that was too sensitive to communicate in a written form. And so they would go to places like the Spreewald and go on picnics and walks. And to any outside observer, they looked like two couples and a little boy running around having a lovely weekend stroll. And what was occurring was a lot of information exchange. This information, I should mention, then got back. uh, Some of the research I did was I went to look at the Morgenthau archives and I wanted to see what these cables were that Donald Heath Sr. sent to Morgenthau. And I wanted to basically connect the dots uh, to see what intelligence was being conveyed to Morgenthau and the State Department in D.C. and whether I could trace that back to Arvid Harnock's intelligence from the Ministry of Economics, the same intelligence that he was also sharing for a time with the Soviet embassy in Berlin. So in my book, I... I show how I was able to connect some of these dots. You connect the dots and, yeah, really show how impactful their efforts were 
as resistance and, of course, informing the US of what was going on. But they really did tread a fine line between German high society and American high society, keeping those links in place and sharing those important aspects of what was going on in the war. Now, I have to admit, I don't know too much about the German resistance. I know about the French resistance. We've done episodes on the Danish resistance. So what was it like day to day to be a member of Mildred's group? What sort of activities did they get involved in? And how risky was it? I think the figure in Denmark was you lasted about six weeks and then you were turned in by someone else in your village or town. Was it the same for them? Oh, yes, certainly some of the members of the group, those who were involved in creating leaflets that denounced Hitler's regime and called for revolution. Some, you got caught with a single leaflet, you could be sent to a concentration camp in 1933. And that is indeed what happened to at least two members of the group. For just having literature on you, you'd be sent to a concentration camp. Yes, indeed. It seems so mild to us as an act of resistance to put up leaflets but in fact, it was a tremendous act of courage. They knew what the punishment was, and people were being sent off to concentration camps for one-year terms just for possessing, really just having one of those leaflets on their person. And so the Gestapo wouldn't have to even raid your apartment and see you producing them if you simply had one in your pocket. That was enough evidence to send you off to a concentration camp. Paper was their primary weapon in the early days of the group. But as you might well imagine, there was some hesitancy as well to engage in this kind of resistance because it, the risks were so high. And Arvid and Mildred both believed, again, by 1935, when they decided, you know, we need to expand our reach beyond Germany's borders and we need to penetrate the Nazi regime from within. Uh, and when Arvid got the job at the Ministry of Economics, that was the time when they realized we're shifting strategy. And I, you know, 1932, 33, 34, 35, uh, really between 33 and 35, when Hitler became chancellor, those two years, they still believed that it was just a matter of time that this regime would crumble. It still seemed impossible to them that Germans would allow this to happen and to continue. And they did hold meetings and discuss what the strategy should be to defeat Hitler and his regime. But again, there was still this hope that they would prevail. And so the risks that they took in producing leaflets by 1935 did not seem justifiable and it did not seem like the best strategy for the long term. Once they realized they would be fighting this fight for longer than they thought they would, they thought, let's devise some more effective means of resistance. And so they did during this time. Also, there is evidence, archival evidence, that Mildred helped Jews escape uh, Germany. So some of her students who requested help for themselves or their family members. And again, her access to people at the U.S. Embassy in Berlin was very helpful for her to obtain visas, for example. Uh, the evidence is, again, scant. It's very hard to quantify how many people she tried to save and succeeded in saving. But there are people who did escape, who spoke about Mildred's assistance. Once the war started, the group also engaged in plotting acts of sabotage, and Mildred was among them. And then some of them became involved in espionage as well. And that's also something that is poorly understood about this group. There's this sense 
from what has been written about them, in particular a few books in the decades after her execution, that made it sound as if everyone in the group was a Soviet spy on the payroll, and this simply wasn't the case. One of the groups that merged or intersected in this interlocking chain with the Hernox group was during the Spanish Civil War, they, one of the survivors, Gunter Weissenborn, writes about the leaflets they produced. So they were still actively involved in leaflet production and had people basically give them intelligence. And there were people who took photographs. And there was one woman who would shrink the photographs down to the size of a very small postage stamp and would put them on the leaflets to be distributed And these leaflets then also became a way of information sharing because the Nazi regime was, of course, by this point, had successfully prevented any other information coming from outside Germany and only Nazi-approved newspapers and radio were available for consumption. It was by 1939, if you listened to the BBC, you could be not only arrested, but you could be executed. And so, again, this was an extraordinary act of bravery to even listen to a foreign radio broadcast or put up the leaflet. So Mildred would listen to foreign radio broadcasts and she would listen to Radio Moscow and the BBC. And she would take down speeches that were broadcast, Churchill speeches, FDR speeches, and then she would translate them, and these would go into leaflets. And we know about this, again, from some of the survivors who wrote about this. I think people are judged by how they react at times of adversity, and it sounds to me like Mildred is someone who probably could have had quite an easy war. She most certainly had a privileged role in society. Her American passport would have protected her to a certain extent, and her husband, be of German, would have helped with that as well. And of course, they could have gone back to the United States, but instead, she not only took on a role as an interlocutor, but she put her life at risk at every level of the resistance, being involved in making and distributing information to advise and inform on what was going on in the war, and of course, in those acts of sabotage as well. And this leaves me with a question, Rebecca. How many times was she almost caught? And ultimately, how was she caught? Well, she did go back to the United States once in 1937. And she had the opportunity to escape. And her family begged her to stay. She did not tell them that she was in the resistance. And they did not understand why on earth she would willingly go back to Germany, she behaved very, in a way that they thought was very peculiar. Uh, She seemed quite paranoid to them. They thought that she was perhaps losing her grip on reality. She told her brother that she thought that she was under surveillance and that perhaps people were watching. I mean, these are the utterings of of a mad person, right? This does sound a little bit like I'm being watched by the FBI and perhaps they've put a a microchip in my vaccine sort of territory here. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Imagine a millennium that laid the foundations for the modern world as we know it today, when kingdoms were forged, languages shaped, cultures created. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and on Gone Medieval, my co-host Matt Lewis and I will tell you just why the so-called Dark Ages really weren't that dark after all. Subscribe to Gone Medieval by History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. And we've got to remember, back in the United States at this point, not only was it isolationist, but there were massive movements that not only supported the regime in Germany, but most certainly did not want the United States to get involved in those brutal battles of the European old world. Not again, at least. Yes, absolutely. And her sister, Harriet, who was my great-grandmother, did not want Mildred to entangle herself in Germany anymore. She made her opinions known and didn't understand why she married a German and didn't understand why she continued to involve herself with this country that she felt would inevitably get involved in another European war. And she, like many in the United States at that time, was an isolationist. And she said, this is just none of our business. And the United States was in the middle of a depression and their own family suffered greatly. Mildred's brother was a dairy farmer and was barely hanging on by his fingernails. And here was Mildred... At this point, an academic, she still had not yet gotten her PhD, but she was basically all but dissertation. And she was lecturing and giving lectures about American literature in the United States at this point just to pay for her ticket to get back to Germany. So she gave various lectures at about five different universities, and they were all very well received. And so the family thought, well, here she is, this successful academic, and that's very commendable, but she also seems like she has lost her mind, and also she may actually have gone Nazi. And so they were just very confused by her behavior and begged her to stay, and she refused, but she would not explain why. 
My grandmother, Jane, was 21 at the time in 1937, and she was the only member of the family who was not put off by Mildred's behavior and, in fact, was enamored with her and thought, I want to follow in Mildred's footsteps. I want to be a great scholar in Germany, and I'm going to visit her in Berlin now. And she begged her mother, who is Harriet, Mildred's older sister, begged her, can I visit Mildred? in 1937, a hell of a time to visit. And uh, Harriet said, absolutely not. And her husband also strongly urged Jane to remain in Chevy Chase, Maryland. But Jane managed to raise money through other family members and just for a quick trip over there is what she thought. And so she visited Mildred in 1937 and lived with her for nine months, lived with Arvid and Mildred. So she bore witness to really what Mildred was doing, although Mildred still kept kept from her the knowledge that she was in the resistance. But um, eventually Jane understood what was going on. But by that point, it was the middle of the war. And at one point during the war, the Gestapo raided their apartment. Somebody at the Ministry of Economics had tipped off the Gestapo and said, Arvid Harnock is not the loyal Nazi we think he is. So there was indeed a raid, but the Gestapo found nothing. However, it was very unnerving. And that is the first instance where I think both Mildred and Arvid realized how they were definitely on their radar. And so they had to be even more cautious. Up to that point, though, I wouldn't say that Mildred had a false sense of security. And I can tell by her letters that she became increasingly enigmatic And she was aware clearly that Nazi censors were reading her mail. She began communicating in a kind of code to her mother. She would say the opposite of what she meant. So she would say, what a wonderful parade and what a glorious (laughs) spectacle with all of the men in uniform in Germany marching on May Day. And then she would follow that sentence with some kind of indication that she didn't mean this, that she meant the opposite of this, and to please pay close attention to what I mean, mother. It's interesting to me that the boy courier who Mildred used, this boy Don Heath Jr., who I interviewed when he was 89 years old, people often ask me when they read the book, how did his American parents think that he was protected? If he's carrying messages from Mildred to his parents that potentially have incriminating information, why did they put him in harm's way? Potentially, it could be a death sentence, Rebecca. Absolutely. And it actually is a question that I asked him. And he didn't have an answer for that. He said, except to say, I think my parents were very naive. And they thought as Americans that they were protected. Their house was bugged. It turned out the cook was a Gestapo spy, and yet they still thought that if their son took certain precautions, then it really wasn't that much of a risk. And so his father first told him every time you go to Mildred's apartment, take a different route. Uh, So he would take the U-Bahn and then he would instruct him to get off at this stop or another stop and go to the Berlin Zoo and wander around a bit and then take another detour and then come back. Sometimes he went to the Kadeve department store, go up to the top floor and then go down and take another exit. And it sounds like the stuff of a Le Carre novel, but it's true. He did indeed, this little boy, take various routes uh, to get to Mildred's apartment on Boerstrasse in Berlin. And he also, his father instructed him to check his reflections in the windows of 
the stores to make sure that he wasn't being followed. And sometimes Don would go to the top of the American church in Berlin and look down to see if he anybody was following him. And he was, at 11 years old, it was all very exciting to him, but the danger wasn't real until Berlin started getting bombed. And that's when he started seeing death around him and bodies. And in 1941, June 1941, the family abruptly left. So Mildred and Arvid lost their connection to the U.S. Embassy at that point. That is an amazing story about Donald Heath. To have such a role as an 11-year-old is incredible. Absolutely. He would accompany the Harnocks and the Heaths on these picnics and hiking in the Hartz Mountains. And they would have picnics in the Spreewald. And he would wear a Hitler Youth uniform that his friend Mole had stolen for him. And he was in a boy gang of all Germans. He was the only American. And he would basically wear this uniform. And this was his own idea. So that he would, again, was playing a kind of double role. This was his disguise. And then he would run up ahead and make sure that there weren't any Gestapo agents. He was in the middle of this. And really, he was in a spy novel in his own head. He wanted to make sure there weren't any Gestapo agents. He would overhear his parents' conversation with the Harnocks. And if he did see anybody walking along the path, he would whistle a certain song and that would alert his parents and the Harnocks that they may be under surveillance or there might be somebody who could overhear them. Did you ever get to meet him? I was thrilled to discover that he was still alive. I had been under the impression that he perhaps had passed away and that I had waited too long to interview him. And I discovered that he was indeed alive, 89 years old, um, just shy of his 90th birthday and living in Northern California. And so I jumped on a plane and I flew out to interview him and interviewed him at length. And he did indeed pass away just weeks after I interviewed him. And then his family invited me to return to California and to rummage through 12 steamer trunks of documents and photographs. And in these trunks, I discovered a wealth of information, including his mother's diaries. So I was able to corroborate a lot of what Don had told me. Of course, when you're interviewing an 89-year-old man about his boyhood in Berlin, his memory may be vivid, but you never know in the passage of time what has really become an embellishment. There are stories that we tell ourselves from our own history, but it's amazing you're able to get hold of those diaries because... That would have allowed you to corroborate a lot of this evidence. Absolutely. I was able to also, for example, pinpoint the exact day that was Mildred's first tutoring session with Donald Heath. So then I, when I began writing my book, I was able to place that in history, that first date in history, against the backdrop of what was going on in Germany and in the world. So Don also and his father wrote memoirs that were never published and that were also unearthed. And Don's sister, Sue, researched this story in the 1980s and with the idea that she would write a book. So then I was given all of her notes and her interviews with family members. So I, and then also Louise Heath kept date books as well. And so she would record the other diplomats she would have teas with and people who she would meet with who were basically in the expat community. And, and then I was able to, again, connect the dots uh, using all these different sources. And that was tremendously gratifying to me. I felt 
that it was important for me to understand Mildred. I wanted to see her from multiple perspectives. And I was also aware that there would be gaps in information. I cannot connect all the dots because evidence has been destroyed and by her own hand and by her sister's hand. Her sister Harriet, my great grandmother, urged the family to burn every letter and every photograph belonging to Mildred after the war because she was intent on avoiding any kind of scrutiny for being a family member of a, at that point, communist. She was seen through a Cold War lens. And the scant reporting that there was about Mildred Harnock and her group that reached the United States basically charged her as being involved in a communist conspiracy. And so a lot of the other, I do have letters that were discovered in an attic that my grandmother discovered in the 1980s that were stashed by their own mother. So fortunately, some of the record has been preserved. Also, I conducted extensive archival research in Berlin and the National Archives I visited also in London. And I did extensive research in the United States. And basically, I was trying to gather as many declassified intelligence documents as I could. And I also worked with a historian in Moscow. And whenever I could, I used my personal family, my familial connection to Mildred to gain access to documents that no one has seen before. And I succeeded in doing so. I even was able to get a little sliver of Mildred's NKVD file by appealing to the Russian embassy. I also gained access to the notes that were passed in prison by Mildred and her co-conspirators, or I should say by Mildred's co-conspirators. The notes that she passed were confiscated and used against her in the mass trial that was conducted and that involved all the members of the so-called Red Orchestra Again, this was not a name that they used. This was the name given to them by German intelligence, the Abwehr. And it discredited them as, again, this is where the perception that this was just a bunch of Soviet spies and that was their sole occupation. This is where this began, the Red Orchestra. They called them Red because they knew that these Germans and this one American were involved in passing information to Moscow Center. And they used the word orchestra to denote an espionage network. But this was not unique to their espionage network. They used this to identify other espionage networks as well. So Mildred and her husband had been raided by the Gestapo on one occasion. Take us through how her and her group, the so-called Red Orchestra, were captured on that fateful day. How were they found out? Well, after the Gestapo raid, Mildred and Arvid became even more cautious, as they also deepened their involvement in Soviet espionage. And so it really was just a matter of time before the group would be discovered. They were sending messages to Moscow Center, information that both Arvid Harnock and Harald Schulze-Boysen, who was a senior lieutenant in the Luftwaffe, they were both stealing information, classified information about Hitler's operational and military strategies and passing it off to Moscow Center. And at this point, they were using radio transmitters, but it was the middle of the war and the radios kept breaking. In a post-war memoir, one of the surviving members of the group writes about how appallingly they were trained. Really, they weren't trained well. Uh, they did not know how to use cipher pads. They didn't know how to use the radios. They were hastily trained. And one of them 
blew up and they had to be replaced and they had to parachute people in with the transmitters. And while they were passing these messages, the Funkabwehr, the radio, the signals group affiliated with the Abwehr, basically a signal had been intercepted. Uh, one of these messages had been intercepted. And then the German intelligence attempted to decode this message and it took them a year. And once they decoded the message, and it's a, actually a very complicated series of events that occurred that I go into in depth in my book. But once they intercepted the message and once they started decoding it, they needed to find the code book that was used. And they used a Soviet checkerboard pattern code that relied on also the use of this book. And it was an obscure novel. And there was a Gestapo raid and this book, they finally determined which book this was, and they tracked it down in a used bookshop in Paris, allegedly, and they were able to crack the code about a year after the first message was intercepted. And at this point, the first member of the group was arrested, Harald Schulze-Boysen, who was the, a senior lieutenant at the Luftwaffe. And his wife, Libertas Schulze-Boysen, immediately began to alert members, as many as she could, that they were on the verge of being arrested. Mildred Harnock and Arvid Harnock attempted to escape. They fled to Nazi-occupied Lithuania, and they went to a cottage that friends of theirs had by the seaside and along the Curonian Spit. And the morning after they arrived, the Gestapo showed up, accompanied by an SS officer named Horst Kopko, who made the arrest, and they were then taken back to Gestapo headquarters in Berlin. The couple that was with Mildred and Arvid, one of them, Egmont Zeklin is his name, he's a historian, and he wrote, several years after the war, wrote a long account of this arrest. So we do have an eyewitness account of this arrest. And he included dialogue. We have a sense of what the Gestapo agent said, what Kopko said, what Mildred said, what Arvid said. And it's an extremely dramatic essay that he wrote that I relied on to recreate a scene. And so we know essentially what was said when they were arrested. Back at Gestapo headquarters, they were put into the basement cells of Gestapo headquarters and all of their friends in the resistance were there. Over the course of the next few weeks, everybody was rounded up. It was not hard. Again, nobody was well-trained spy. The people who were not involved in espionage were also rounded up. It was astonishingly easy for the Gestapo to basically arrest what it turned out they managed to arrest 119 members of the group. And it was a very diverse group. Among them were social democrats, communists, they were factory workers, professors, students, artists, writers, and 40%, according to Gestapo records, 40% were women. So the, as the basement cells began to fill up in Gestapo headquarters, the men were sent off to men's prisons and the women were sent off to women's prisons. Every day, key members would be then sent back to Gestapo headquarters to be interrogated. And Horst Kopko, who had a personally arrested Mildred and Arvid, also presided over the interrogations of this group and assigned interrogators. There were five of them, including one interrogator who was particularly sadistic 
and employed torture, and he was assigned to break Mildred Harnock and Arvid and other members. But um, one woman who survived spoke about being on one of the floors where interrogations, there were the upper floors where the interrogations would take place. And she saw Mildred being taken out of a room on a stretcher. And she was unconscious at this point after having been tortured. Mildred was in solitary confinement and was not allowed to write letters or read books. These were privileges that were actually given to some members of the group, including Arvid. Arvid received packages from his family Arvid Harnock came from a very prominent academic family, and his uncle was Adolf von Harnock, who was an esteemed theologian. The Harnock House, which is still in Berlin, was a center for scientists and artists and thinkers. And this house was, just to give you a sense of his uncle's prominence, this house was established in, in his name. So Arvid got care packages. It's not quite accurate. It's not as if he got foil-wrapped banana bread. But he did get books and he did receive writing implements. He started working on another book while he was in prison. And he was able to meet with family members, including Falk Harnock, who is his brother. And Falk Harnock was involved in the Weisserhose, the White Rose. And so this is an example of some of the connections between the other resistance groups. It's often assumed that there weren't connections, but indeed there were. In, in Arvid Harnock's case, they were familial. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran pastor, very prominent in the resistance, was his cousin. And Dietrich and Klaus Bonhoeffer and other members of the family were involved in the 1944 Valkyrie plot. They were all executed, but back to prison. So Arvid was able to meet with family members several times. This is while these interrogations were taking place. Arvid also was being tortured, and he told this to his brother Falk who survived, so we have these records. And Falk repeatedly tried to get access to Mildred, tried to give her vitamins, food, books, paper, pens, all things that Arvid received. And these were not given to her. She was not permitted to have any contact with anybody. We don't know why Falk and others have speculated about why Mildred was treated differently. Was it because she was an American? Was it because there was concern that if the Americans found out that, that something would be done? We don't know. This was a top secret mass trial that was being prepared. And in terms of just, I'm going to situate this in time, this was the fall of 1942. So they were arrested in September and the trial was in December. So over the course of several months, these interrogations were taking place. The Gestapo was trying to understand how large this network was. And they followed a strict procedure, which entailed getting two pieces of damning evidence against a member of this group. If there were two pieces of damning evidence, then that constituted proof that they were traitors, and then they were given the death penalty. And so this was, during the mass trial, the evidence that was extracted under torture was admitted there was no justice that was carried out at this trial, of course. And it was at the Reichskriegsgericht, the German, the Reich Court Martial, which usually people who appeared before the judges there were soldiers who had deserted or high-ranking military officials who had not followed orders. But these were civilians, except in the case of Harald Schulze Boysen, who was in the Luftwaffe. These were civilians who were being tried at the court, at the Reich Court Martial. 
And it was a top secret trial. The family members of those who were arrested were told that if they breathed a word of this, then they too would be arrested and executed. So it was all done under a cloak of secrecy. The trials, there were about 17 to 19 trials that were held beginning in December of 1942 and continuing through 1943. Mildred's first trial, she was tried as being an accessory to treason. And the trial transcripts don't exist. The Nazis burned them or buried them. There are varying accounts of what happened to them. But we do have the sentencing documents. And she was given six years in prison. It was successfully argued. She had a lawyer and everybody had a lawyer who was assigned to them, who they met with about five minutes before the judges. So, but in Mildred's case, this lawyer was able to argue that she was just a wife and she didn't know anything about what Arthur was doing, except on one occasion, she bore witness to an exchange between Arvid and a Soviet agent. There was evidence to prove that she had brought the man into the apartment and she was given six years in prison. Two days later, Hitler overturned that verdict and ordered a second trial. And it was very clear what the punishment he desired would be. And she, on February 16th, 1943, was strapped down to a guillotine at Plutensee Prison in Berlin, and she was beheaded. So Hitler personally got involved in this case and wanted some sort of revenge and retribution. That's correct. That is incredible, Rebecca. Thank you so much for sharing this story of your great-great-aunt with us. And it is incredible just how you've got this amazing treasure trove of information. And in the book, you're able to piece this together almost like a thriller. Now tell us, where can people buy the book? My book is a work of narrative nonfiction. I like to think of it as a fusion of biography, espionage thriller, and scholarly detective story. All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days takes its title from the book of Goethe poems that Mildred was translating in her cell before she was brought to a guillotine and beheaded. A pastor for the prison who was secretly in the resistance, Harald Polschau, smuggled the book out, and this is why we have it to this day, and that All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days is the line of one of the poems that she was translating. So we have in my book, I have a scan of that page and you can see her handwritten translations in the margins. And I thought that was a particularly apt line to describe the story in these pages, all the frequent troubles of our days. You may buy my book, All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days at any major bookseller, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound or any independent bookstore. Well, it is getting rave reviews in the New York Times at the moment, multiple rave reviews. So I suggest you go out and buy it. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.